gone, I say, and walk from church. Refusing the stiff procession to the grave, letting the dead ride alone in the hearse. It is June, and I am tired of being brave. Mr. Wong, Mr. Wong, <laughs> I've got your American Express card, Mr. Wong. <laughs> How you been? Oh, very, very, very good. I've got Richard with me, my friend. I told you about. He just wanted to hear your voice and say hello. You know. Hello. <laughs> yeah. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Nice to. I'm talking to Tasa Wong the man who survived while his friend from the Pong Su drowned in huge seas at Boggley Creek in 2003. When police found him hiding in the scrub after the ship took off without him, he was near starving and couldn't speak a word of English. 16 years in jail in Australia has changed that. Nice to hear your voice. Chris has told me a little bit about you. I, I, I told him you cook a very good chicken curry. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you heard heard anything from the uh, from the authorities regarding your um, uh, passport or identity or anything? Uh, no, yes, but uh, I I think this week uh, tomorrow or anyway uh, any time this week I think. What? This phone conversation took place in June 2019. The man who made the phone call is a guy called Chris Kosh. I'd felt for a long while that doing a podcast on the Pongsu drama and the men at the centre of it was a good idea. But it wasn't until a meeting I had with Chris earlier this year that I really knew that it was meant to be. I've known Chris for a long time. He's a smart and engaging guy. Chris was a high-profile motivational speaker who became caught up in a murky international finance scheme in the 1990s. Unfortunately... Chris convinced several people to invest in it and, like him, they lost their money. It took a while, but the law caught up with Chris. He was convicted of obtaining a financial advantage by deception in 2010 and served seven years in jail. The murky financial world Chris says he got caught up in is interesting, as were aspects of his conviction. I often report on white-collar crime. So in early 2019, Chris asked me to meet him for a coffee to talk about his story. As we chatted, I mentioned my Pong Su project, and then, for good measure, I threw in a long-shot question. Had he ever come across anyone in jail connected to the ship or the heroine? Yes, he said. He became mates with Tasa Wong and Yao Kim Lam, while they were all at a medium security prison near Castlemaine in regional Victoria. And I happened to be living in the same cottage and uh, they were on rooms on either side of me. And uh, when they found out that I had Sri Lankan background, of course, they invited me to join them for dinner because they cooked. And thank goodness for that, or I'd, I'd be a little slimmer than I am today. So they started to look after me and, and you know, they uh, I find guys like that are very respectful of elders and cause I was quite a lot older than both of them. So they now call me uncle. I have to say I was stoked about the unexpected connection between Chris and two key players from the Pong Su. Chris told me that to make the most of his time in jail, he studied appeal law to see if he could help himself. But he soon found himself helping others, like Wong and Lam, 
his prison neighbours. As time went on and they were getting closer to their parole period ending and the fact that they had some issues with identification so that their chance of being deported was going to be problematic, they came to me one day and said, look, we need to talk to you. So we closed the room and as best as their English could provide it, they they gave me um, what was their story and uh, I didn't disbelieve them or believe them. I just accepted it, which is what you do in prison. Chris showed me text messages from Wong and emails of Australian Border Force correspondents about the Pong Su pair's ongoing problem with proving their identities. Dear Mr Koch, thank you for your correspondence of 13 May 2018 to the Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Immigration and Border Protection, the Honourable Peter Dutton MP, concerning Mr Ta Sa Wong. The Australian Government takes its role in protecting the community from unacceptable risk of harm from criminal or serious conduct by non-citizens very seriously. Everyone who wants to enter or stay in Australia must satisfy the character requirements set out in Section 501 of the Migration Act. Remember, Wong was found at Boggley Creek with no passport or identification. Even in 2019, no one other than Lam knew who Wong really was or where he was from. North Korea had consistently denied that he was one of its citizens, and so had China. Wong himself had never made clear where he was from. Nor had the man we've come to know as Lam. He was not the Yao Kim Lam his fake Malaysian passport said he was. His identity and home were a mystery. And I said, well, you know, you're going to have to um, have some challenges. Chris knows things about these guys that no one else in Australia does. Yao Kim Lam, I believe, had a child. I've seen a photo of that child. Parts of the Pongsu story, which had never made much sense, started to fall into place. They claimed to have come from the same village and they knew each other as children. The people bringing the heroine, codenamed Girlfriend, ashore, would only give it to Lam. The man we now believe was from the same village as Wong, the handover guy in the speedboat. If he's not there, we, can, we, can, we can't get the girlfriend, right? That guy won't give it to us. So we need to find him first. Uh, they claim to have come from uh, somewhere between North Korea and China, some sort of uh, um, area which is sort of... It's a loose geographical region. And there's a bit of movement between the two places. How tight is their bond then, given that they've really had not many other people other than each other to rely oh. on for the last 16 or 17 years? Yeah, I mean, they, they were as close as I've seen two men in a, in a, in a non-sexual way trust. You know, they, they ate together, they walked together, they worked together, they, they watched movies together at night in each other's rooms, they laughed together. They were, they were brothers as best as I could put it. But as a result of their predicament, the, the bond grew. You know, mm. and, and they would they would take a bullet for each other. Chris says Wong was no longer the skinny wretch from 2003, whose pants had to be held up by the rubber bands used to wrap the heroin. Like many in prison, Wong hit the weights. So did Lamb. They kept themselves busy. Uh, they've got a passion for soccer, both of them, uh, almost soccer in our tragics and uh, that's available within the prison system for them to play they'd put teams together and and uh, you know really participate and enjoy all that and uh, Joachim Lamb uh, uh, was also fit 
but his passion was gardening. So he, he grew all the vegetables we ate. <laughs> so, just, and uh, and he was a good cook. So was Wong. And, uh, uh, you know, I look forward to Tuesdays and Thursday nights because we had chicken curry and all that sort of stuff, which was great. Recent photos of the pair from inside immigration detention sent to Chris show Wong and Lamb looking fit, strong and happy. Though the passing of time is evident in Wong's salt and pepper hair and the creases on both men's faces. Lamb seems every bit the Aussie, sitting under a shady tree in a singlet and thongs. They were typical prisoners to the extent that they never mingle with the other side, you know, as far as the officialdom is concerned, because that's considered a no-no. you know, they they res- respected their officers, you know. If they were given a direction, they did something. If they had to be up at a certain time, they were there. They, uh, You know, they were very, very, very tidy and very, very clean, which is not that common in the prison system, mm. you know. They're very honourable people, you know. They're, they're, there was nothing that you ever um, could say. that They were generous to the extreme, never asked for anything, if I'd bought something at the canteen and, you know, they were just, you could see their embarrassment to accept a gift. They, they weren't people that ex- had a natural desire to exploit their, their fellow man, you know. But even with Chris, they remained guarded about the Pong Su incident and their crucial roles in it. Wong once told Chris a far-fetched story about believing he was carrying bicycle parts in the rubber dinghy, not heroin. Chris got the sense they were scared of something or someone, even after all this time. They opened up to the extent that it was made obvious to me that they were worried about what would happen subsequent to their sentence. Something that they knew, whether it be the organisation that was involved or the bigger picture that they had or a suspicion of. They didn't share any specifics with me about that, except there, there was a sense of clear paranoia. Chris Koch is one of many people whose lives have been changed by the Pong Su. He still gets emotional when he talks about his bond with Wong and Lam. The Pong Su also left its mark on the police and lawyers involved in the case. At the start of the series, we heard how a strong camaraderie formed between the prosecutors, defence barristers, solicitors for both sides and the federal police. So much so that they've all gotten together over the years for the occasional Pong Su catch-up dinner. Down in the Victorian coastal towns of Lawn and Wai River, the Pongsu drama remains one of the most exciting events in living memory. In fact, reminders are everywhere if you look hard enough. But then in a week he had bloody hundred t-shirts made up. He's going to make a fortune, all this shit. <laughs> Lifetime Lawn resident Dickie Davies is talking about his mate, Greeny, and the special Pongsu t-shirts he had printed. These T-shirts are still worn by laid-back locals who share a brand of dark Aussie humour. Oh, that was the, just the Pong Su emblem on the big bloody heroin, heroin sticker on the T-shirt. It was a ripper. White, you could get white ones or red ones. I had a couple of them. There are also Pong Su bumper stickers. Dickie has one on the back of his ute. It's got the WO Globe heroin brand on it and says the Pong Su Drowning Not Waving World Tour 2003. 
So how does one get to North Korea? What do you do? What's the logistics? I think you can catch a train through the border area, but you basically fly from China, you fly from Beijing on a company, maybe still is called Air Koryo. And I can't recall, I think they had flights twice a week in and out. So you go to Beijing. And you need a visa's entry to back and forth to Beijing. That's how you do it. Jack Dalziel has been to North Korea twice. The solicitor for the Pongsu crew went once while the legal battle with Australian prosecutors was still underway. His second visit was after a jury found Master Sun and the three others not guilty of helping import a record haul of heroin into the state of Victoria. I got the impression the second trip was a gesture of appreciation from the North Koreans behind the Pongsu shipping company who funded Jack's travel. What's Pyongyang like for a Westerner? For a West, very different. Different for me, I hadn't travelled very much at the time in any event, but compared with Melbourne, it's extremely different. It was very hot and muggy when I was there. No advertising. Sounds like a funny thing to say, but you, you, you become aware of a city that's just not adorned in advertising and lights and whatever. Jack didn't see many other Westerners around the city, and he soon discovered he couldn't go far off the beaten track without attracting attention. Once I was simply waiting for a car and I wandered out the front of the hotel and started just walking. It was a huge area. And um, I walked really just to kill time and some fellow came up to me and sort of gently guided me back to the hotel and with no real menace or anything, nothing, none of that, but just sort of indicating also that I think I'd wandered too far. <laughs> Jack showed me one photo from his trip. He's wearing a white short sleeve shirt. Flanking him are two of the Pongsu's so-called owners, Kim Chu Nam and the charismatic John Hak Bom. Jack says North Korean hospitality is good. But it was, um, I ate well. Ate a lot of food there and um, barbecues. And that's one thing people have in common. Everyone likes to have a barbecue. <laughs> Jack wasn't the only friend of the Pongsu crew to be offered a trip to North Korea. Master Sun's barrister, Ian Hayden, chose not to take his up. But the South Korean mission to seafarers pastor in Geelong, Noah Park, who visited the crew while they were imprisoned, was curious to see what the other half of Korea was like. When you come to officially that time, and some uh, government is member, political member to come, you know, we each other talking to that. They explain that policies, you know, North Korean policies. Noah's talking about how a government official welcomed him to North Korea and educated him on Kim Jong-il's policies. When Noah visited, Master Sun, Political Secretary Choi and the two engineers were still locked up in Australia awaiting trial. But 26 out of the 30 men on the Pongsu had already returned home. Noah asked his hosts if he could see some of the Pongsu men he used to visit in Bowen Prison. At that time, I want to see the and release the uh, crew member. So I asking to, you know, one of our guide, he said, you know, I, I, can I see the dead no, all crews on there? Noah was told this wasn't going to happen. North Korea didn't like foreigners mixing with ordinary people. Oh, too hard to uh, and see them. Because it's North Korea, still, you know, 
and foreign or, or, or other people to visit uh, and directly local peoples, that is a, a, a big trouble later on there. I'm Matthew Lynch, and I'm a forensic pathologist here at the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine. Anyone who dies in an unexplained way in Victoria will end up on a slab in front of someone like Dr Lynch. His job is to inform the state coroner on causes of death. He can remember the day he became involved in the Pong Su story. Um, so I think it was late afternoon, and uh, through the office of the coroner, uh, I made contact with someone, a member of the homicide squad, because there'd been a, a man's body discovered down near Wye River uh, on the beach. Dr Lynch had hoped to get down to the scene at Boggley Creek, but he was told by police that the tide was coming in and the scene would soon be covered by the ocean. So he waited for the dead man from the Pong Su to be brought to Melbourne and then he opened him up. He's a reasonably muscular, um, middle-aged man of Asian appearance. What did I, I found he had some injuries to his head, so, you know, like some um, lacerations and bruises, and his skull was uh, fractured or broken underneath those injuries. So that's something that might have been sustained when he was in the water, coming into contact with something heavy like a rock, or could have been sustained prior to him going into the water. You know, it's, a, it's night, poor light, choppy, choppy water, or both of them goes overboard. They hit their head on something that's in the vicinity. And if you're in the water and you lose consciousness, then you're vulnerable to drowning. So I think the expression we use often is it's consistent with drowning. So it's consistent with him um, going into the water, sustaining an injury and then not being able to extricate himself from the environment. Two live crabs were found in the man's clothes. Coroner Hall Lacey would later confirm the man did die by drowning. So he was buried um, back a number of years ago now, back um, in 2009. Dr Jody Leditschke is the manager of Melbourne's main mortuary. She's telling me about the resting place of the man who died on that wild night trying to bring the Pongsu's heroine ashore. So he's at a plot, a cemetery, that we usually place people when they either don't have a name or they don't have funds or a family that are going to bury themselves. And is that just, I'm not going to ask, you know, the precise location, but is that just in suburban Melbourne somewhere? Yes, yeah. it is, yeah. Funerals for unidentified people with no friends or family, like the man in the dinghy with Wong, are low-key, lonely affairs. There's actually a minister of a religion, often there at the time, and a couple of funeral directors, but that's it. Um, whether they don't actually hold a service... Um, I'm unsure in this case whether they actually did have someone there. Sometimes they don't even have that. Although the Victorian coroner held an inquest into his death in 2007, the man still has no name. The mortuary refers to him simply as unknown man, Y River. Our aim is to give a name to every person here, if possible. But unfortunately, it's not all the, always possible because we just don't have enough information. And in this case, where we've got somebody from overseas 
um, in circumstances which I understand are extremely difficult and part of an investigation. And there's obviously a degree of secrecy amongst um, a whole lot of elements of his death. People may not want to come forward and that's really hard. And it's really hard to convince people to come forward in that circumstances. Wong told police and coronial investigators that his friend's name was Sui Shan Hua, or Chui. But Coroner Dyson Hall Lacey said he couldn't accept Wong's evidence because there were so many gaping holes in his story. To say that I do not believe a word Mr Wong told me about himself and Sui may be an overstatement. There are so many contradictions and inconsistencies on key issues, including his own name and past, that I find that I cannot be satisfied that the name of the dead person is as he now says. After his lonely burial in 2009, the nameless man lay unremarked in his plot in suburban Melbourne for a long time. Then on the 22nd of June, 2017, Jody Leditschke got a letter. We've received an application from Mr Wong for um, the remains and of his, what he says is his best friend. And he clearly lays out in this document uh, the exact reasons why he wants to um, retrieve the remains and take them back with him. At the time he sent the letter, Wong was getting close to being eligible for parole. His prison pal, Chris Koch, helped him draft it. Then over the past 10 years, he believes it's an acceptable time that's elapsed if no one else has claimed why can't I as a big as as a best friend, and uh, he wants to locate his family to take, hand back these remains to his family for a proper burial. It was a bold appeal from a man still in jail, but it didn't cut the mustard with authorities. We still don't have an identity, and um, the coroner looked at this in detail according to the file and decided that I still can't say that this is this person. So there was no way. We've got no DNA from a family. We've got no dental records. Um, we've got no way of confirming who this person is besides the word of Mr Wong. So it was decided at the time where the remains can't be released to him. After all this time, Wong still wanted to give his friend a proper burial. What does that say about his character? Or that of some of the others who came here on the Pong Su? To me, it shows they had each other's backs. They looked out for each other, even when it would have been smarter not to. Remember how Master Sun kept the Pong Su just off Boggley Creek for many hours to give a stranded Wong a chance to get back on board? I suspect Wong, Lam and the drowned man all knew each other before they got involved in the Pong Su. It would explain why Lam was the only man they would pass the heroin to. It would also explain why Lam sounded so distraught in that frantic phone call from the beach. You know, one is dead. Do you know? Hello, hello. One is dead. Do you know? I'm certain there was a personal connection between the three of them. The Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine has stored a DNA sample from the drowned man in the unlikely event a relative might emerge from somewhere to give him a name and take him home. The biggest question for me in the Pongsu story isn't which Asian crime syndicate was behind it, 
or whether North Korea's Kim family were in on the conspiracy. It's what happened to the ship's crew once they were deported back to North Korea from Australia in 2004. Were they able to get on with their lives? Or did some other fate await them? The leader of the federal police's Pong Su investigation, Des Appleby, wondered the same. When the, um, the bulk of the crew went back, we did exactly that. We inquired um, what would happen to them. Des says it's impossible to know for sure, as you just can't make polite inquiries for information with a country like North Korea. But he has a pretty good idea. So the people that um, uh, would know most about what would happen to them pretty much informed me that um, they would have been executed. You can get killed by the state in North Korea for lots of reasons. Drug possession over a certain amount, drug trafficking, and using state resources to commit crimes can all attract the death penalty. Executions are occasionally public, but mostly happen in secret. So it's impossible to know how many people die this way each year. As leader of the UN's panel of experts, Hugh Griffiths had access to some of the world's best intelligence material on North Korea. So I asked him if he knew what had become of the Pongsu's crew. I started by floating Dez's theory that they'd been executed. Would that surprise you or shock you from what your knowledge of how the, the, this regime operates? I couldn't comment on that. Uh, is there any, any reason you, you're unable to comment? Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to talk about cases the panel's had, so... Um, it's difficult to explain, but... Um, oh, oh, can I rephrase the question? Uh, I guess us, those of us lucky to live in, you know, Western democracies and things like that, we're aware of consequences, but are we talking in, in places like North Korea um, a whole different level of consequence for perceived failure or whatever to do your job? Well, I, I think you, you can, if you're looking at open sources, then you can look at the VX nerve gas attack in Kuala Lumpur airport, which shows the extent to which certain parties in North Korea are willing to go and what can be authorised. Hugh's talking about how Kim Jong-un's half-brother, Kim Jong-nam, was murdered in a plot devised by North Korean special agents in full public view at a Malaysian airport in 2017. A horrifying discovery from Malaysian officials. They say Kim Jong-nam, half-brother of North Korean leader Kim Jong-un, was killed by a chemical weapon, a VX nerve agent, when he was attacked at the Kuala Lumpur airport. North Korea detained Malaysian diplomats until one of its own citizens, who was considered a suspect, was returned to Pyongyang. Four North Korean agents suspected of masterminding the plot got on the first plane out of Malaysia and made it home. But two women, one from Vietnam and the other from Indonesia, were arrested and charged with murder. They were the ones who delivered the VX nerve agent to Kim Jong-nam's face via handkerchiefs. 
Both women claimed they had been duped and thought they were taking part in a prank for a TV show. Experts say VX is one of the most potent chemical weapons. It can kill almost instantly. VX shuts down the enzyme that regulates your nervous system, and so your nervous system goes crazy, uh, which is why you see things like convulsions, and eventually uh, you just stop breathing. Eventually, Malaysian authorities drop the murder charges against both women. VX nerve agent is banned under the International Convention on Chemical Weapons. North Korea has a stockpile of it, and Kim Jong-un appears happy to use it when he sees fit. Their current situation in North Korea is totally a uh, secret. Out of all the people I spoke to to make this podcast, this is the man who probably has the best idea what might have happened to the Pongsu's crew. Former senior North Korean diplomat turned high-profile defector, Thay Yong-ho, has no illusions about how North Korean officials would have received the men. The most important thing for them is not actually the loss of those dollars, but the biggest punishment for them is that they actually diminished the North Korea's image worldwide. They spoiled it. While Thay stresses he doesn't actually know what happened to the crew, his experience of the way North Korea worked in 2004 leads him to a stark conclusion. As Thay says, it's not the loss of $100 million worth of heroin, it's the loss of face that would have most concerned North Korea's leadership. Despite the legal outcomes in Australia, the rest of the world now saw North Korea as a major heroin trafficker because the Pongsu crew got caught. They have to erase or delete everything which could give a clue to Australian government to prove that they were engaged in that kind of, you know, the drug smuggling, but they failed to do it. So, so that's why I think uh, they must have a very severe punishment. We know South Korean pastor Noah Park asked to visit some of the crew on his trip to North Korea and was denied access. But solicitor Jack Dalziel, who visited North Korea in 2006 after the trial, had some surprising news. I saw them, yeah, I saw, I saw the four that were on trial and John Bomb and a few others. While Jack didn't see any of the Pongsu's ordinary crew members, he did have lunch with Master Sun, his three co-accused and their apparent boss, John Hakbong, months after they left Australia. I went to Korea after the verdict and I saw them. We had... One one occasion we had again we had a large lunch there where there was a lot of beer and whiskey, as well as you know food, and uh, they were all in, they were happy and looking very well. Jack says Master's son was in retirement by the time they met for lunch. He could finally spend time with all those grandchildren. That was the last time Jack ever saw anyone from the Pong Sioux. When I told him that the federal police and others suspected the rest of the crew were no longer alive, he was taken aback. He asked why the most powerless people in the Pongsu drama would have been punished for outcomes not of their making. I've stayed in touch from time to time with John Bomb, but again, I think when he's outside doing business in China, I can contact him, but. Not not within North Korea. Is that like with email or...? Yeah, with yeah. email. And even um, 
less so because there's many years past now. So it's uh, life moves on, you know. I've tried to find out where Hackbomb is now. A man with the same name is listed as the president of a North Korean entity called the Green Pine Associated Corporation. The United Nations describes Green Pine as North Korea's primary arms dealer, specialising in military maritime crafts and ballistic missiles. Back in the days when Chris Koch was spending time with Wong and Lam in Loddon Prison, he couldn't help but notice something else that made the pair different to all the other inmates. They'd never had any visits from anybody. And so on one occasion uh, when my wife, Bianca, was, who'd come and visit me every week or whenever she could, I decided that, you know, it would be nice for us to put them on, our, on her visit list, which was quite a trust because it, to do that, you've, they've got to get your address. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it, it's quite a bit in prison to give somebody else your home, home address, as you can well appreciate. But I was so confident in their um, integrity um, that I decided to do that. And so when Bianca came to visit us, the two of them joined. And uh, I remember it distinctly because she uh, walked up to give them a hug and um, <laughs> they, they turned into statues. <laughs> they just couldn't move. That They either culturally didn't feel good about hugging a woman with the husband in, in attendance, uh, but it relaxed for a while and we had a wonderful day together. And that was the only visit they ever had for 17 years while they were in prison. Now, after all those years, it seemed Wong and Lam might finally get the chance to find some family of their own. Hello, how are you? I only ever got to speak to Tasa Wong the once, and it was very brief. But Wong's friend, Chris Koch, kept on talking to him and Lam during the 2019 Australian winter, long after Chris himself had been released. So they ring me once or twice a week. And it was getting hard because I, I, I had so little hope and news to give them, you know, and you could just sense at the other end how um, desperate they were getting. And and I thought at one stage sort of possibly suicidal, you know. They wanted to get out of here, you know. They, they, were, they wanted to go and find their families, you know, they just want to move on. By this point, the pair had been in Yonga Hill Immigration Detention Centre near Perth in Western Australia for about a year. They had served their time in jail for their role in the heroin import, but they were far from free. They just happened to be two guys that were in the rare position of saying, please deport me, <laughs> I, I want to leave and, and take me anywhere or take my word that I come from North Korea. But that uh, clearly wasn't sufficient to be able to do so. So they could have very well been here till they pass away. There's a stateless person. Pong Su case officer Celeste Johnston was clear Wong and Lam wouldn't be going anywhere until some country accepted their claims. Home affairs aren't going to be able to put them on a plane because there's nowhere to point them to. There's no obligation on any other country to accept them when they've got no identity. But one day... Wong and Lam told Chris that everything was about to change. The first thing that they told me was that they had provided identification via driving licences and birth certificates. Um, 
and clearly th that wasn't sufficient level of authentication for the Australian government, so that they had to then provide uh, passports. They were uh, incredibly adamant, uh, not just confident, but absolutely adamant that, that this was going to be their ticket out of the country. After 16 years of insisting Wong wasn't theirs and had never been on board the Pong Su, North Korea quietly issued him with a fresh passport in July this year. Working via Chinese authorities, they provided the passport to the Australian government. North Korea did the same for Lam, who we know came into Australia in 2003 on a false Malaysian passport. Wong told Chris that while they were preparing to leave Australia, he and Lam had a visit from an Australian Border Force official who asked them to sign a document which clearly stated that uh, they weren't being under any pressure to uh, leave the country and that if they did do so, it would be at their own request. Uh, I guess it was the Australian government's way of saying, look, um, we don't want, really want to be responsible to what happens after you go. This next bit is hard to explain without giving away some confidential sources who live overseas. They know a lot about what's going on inside North Korea. I told them that Wong and Lam had been accepted as citizens by North Korea and were awaiting new passports. Those sources came back with further news, including the name on Lam's new passport. So I asked Chris to run the name past Wong and Lam. And I did um, mention the, the name Rim uh, Hak Myong um, to uh, Wong, um, who, who then agreed that that was the the name that appeared on the passport for the person I knew as Yao Kim Lam. I never found out the name on Wong's new passport. However, my sources overseas assure me that even now, the name given to Lam isn't his real one. For what it's worth, I'm told Lam's real name is Pak Chai Chol and Wong's is Kim I Pom. The news that North Korea has finally admitted that two key players in the Pongsu heroin conspiracy were its own citizens, convinces me the government there was always deeply involved. Had Australian police and prosecutors known for sure that Wong and Lam were North Korean when the four Pongsu men were on trial, they almost certainly would have secured a guilty verdict against Master Sun, Political Secretary Choi and the two engineers. They rang me on the Tuesday uh, to tell me that they, they had been told that they were leaving the country on, on Thursday. Very, very ecstatic. It, you know, said that they hadn't been able to sleep for some days. Chris had one last phone call with Wong and Lam before they left Australia in August 2019. They spoke to Bianca, Chris's wife, and then to their Australian mate. Both of them wanted to pass on their deep gratitude for uh, our friendship. I gave them some fatherly advice about it's the beginning of a new era in their lives. Chris called Wong's mobile on the Thursday. He said he was due to leave. You tried Wong's number. What what happened? Uh, it just, it, it was disconnected. Your call could not be connected. Please check the number and try again. Your call could not be connected. Please check the Chris hasn't heard anything from Wong or Lam since. Out of all the men caught up in the Pongsu conspiracy, only one is left in Australia. 
the fast-talking, tattooed, English-speaking man we got to know as Lee. He's in Victoria's Fulham prison and will soon be eligible for parole. I approached him via his lawyers to see if he'd talk to me, but he declined. By all accounts, he's been a force for good during his time in jail, respected by both inmates and prison authorities. As for me, I still have lots of unanswered questions about the Pong Su incident. Why would the crew, and not the captain, be executed, if in fact that's what happened? Why did the crew display such adulation for a regime that they must have known was cruel in the extreme? And why did they choose one of the roughest coasts in Australia to make the drop, especially if the gear was destined for Sydney? But I'm pretty certain of one thing. Whatever your job, cop, sailor, spy, crim, lawyer or reporter, we've all got more in common than we might think. No matter where we come from, All of us are vulnerable to forces beyond our grasp. And much of the time, we've no choice but to play the cards we've been dealt. I like to imagine that, as I speak, Wong, Lam and the rest of the North Koreans are at home and with their families. I hope so. That there's still a great uncertainty in my mind as to what's happened to them. Do you think you'll hear from them again or not? Well, we have an agreement that I've made with them, that uh, they will buy me dinner wherever they are, (laughs) one day. (laughs) Mr Wong, Mr Wong, (laughs) I've got your American Express card, Mr Wong. (laughs) Well, any time you get any information, you know, just... Ring me, please, or send me text so I so I, I know everything is all right. Yeah. Because you, you never know, they might put you in a plane and just disappear. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And, and you promise to look after me when I come and visit, see? <laughs> yeah. All right, brother. Okay, ca- yeah. ca- catch you later. Okay. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. Stay subscribed to the Pongsu feed. There's more to come in 2020. The Last Voyage of the Pongsu is brought to you by the newsrooms of The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. To read more and to watch the videos referenced in this episode, head to our websites. While you're there, why not take out a subscription to help power independent Australian journalism and productions like this podcast. If you're enjoying this series, leave a review on iTunes and recommend us to a friend. The Last Voyage of the Pong Su is reported by Richard Baker. Field recording and audio editing by executive producer Rachel Dexter. Narrative consultant is Kate Cole-Adams. Siobhan McHugh is consulting producer. Music and composition by Vicky Hansen. Sound design and mixing by John Greenfield. Assistant producer is Margaret Gordon. And Tom McKendrick is head of audio. Thanks to our cast of actors, Chi Kwan Lee is played by Andy Song. Kyung Fa Teng is played by Anthony Ting and Yao Kim Lam is played by Jason Chong. Casting by Catapult Casting. Script translations by Yan Zhuang. Additional audio from CNN. The reading you heard at the start of this episode was an excerpt from The Truth the Dead Know by Anne Sexton, read by Jason Chong. (laughs) 